The year was 1992. The location, Barcelona, Spain. And there, into the Olympic Games for men's basketball enters what is to this day still referred to as the dream team. Some of you may remember it. See up on the screen up there. We had, I mean, look at that roster. You've got Charles Barkley. You've got Patrick Ewing. You've got Larry Bird. You've got Scottie Pippen, Magic Johnson, and of course, none other than the GOAT himself. I said it. The greatest of all time, Michael Jordan, right? (laughs) To top it all off, the majority of these guys were in or at the near, near the peak of their game at that time. And after their five game qualifying round, they emerged undefeated with a 229 point difference, which basically means they scored 229 points more than was scored against them. For a little bit of perspective, Croatia who took silver that year ended up with a 23 point difference. These guys, this U.S. team was absolutely unstoppable. And that's what happens when you have a team of crazy talented players all at the peak of their game working together toward a common goal. The industrialist, Henry Ford, takes it a step further and he says it like this. Teamwork is the ability to work together toward a common vision. It, teamwork, is the fuel that allows common people to attain uncommon results. Common people to attain uncommon results. One more, really imagine the scene with me. It's just past midnight. Uh, The only lighting is the fluorescent ones that are up above you. When all of a sudden an alarm goes off and it is ringing in your ears, code blue at the hospital. And there's a 450 gram preemie that's just under a pound who's fighting for their life. And a team of nurses and doctors and parents flood the room and they are giving it all that they've got to try and save this precious little life of a 24 week old child. It doesn't matter what the diagnosis or procedure the medical team may have been arguing over before. All of a sudden, what you want in that moment is a team that can lay aside those differences and come together toward a common goal of saving this precious life. It turns out it's not just basketball or assembling cars or the ICU where this kind of teamwork is necessary. What if I told you that working as a team matters even more when it comes to our faith in Jesus? Well, I wanna welcome you to Heart of Life. My name is Peter, one of the pastors here. Just delighted that you've taken the chance to join as we take a look at God's word. We're gonna continue in the series that we've been calling Fearless. Fearless, that it is possible to live a fearless life, a life that is unshakable, immovable, that is steadfast and strong. It's possible and a key ingredient that we're gonna discover this morning is the power of a team. And so that's where we're going. But before we get there, we need to lay a little groundwork first. Last week, We talked about a fearless life that is transformed by the power of the gospel, able to stand firm because of the Holy Spirit. And we saw that in uh, in Philippians chapter 1, which we're going to look at right now. Philippians chapter 1, starting with verse 27. 
Whatever happens, this is the Apostle Paul writing from prison. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit. That was last week. And now we're going to focus on this next phrase, striving together as one. Say those four words with me. Striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Quick paraphrase. Here's what Paul is saying. If we want to live a life that is fearless and exemplifies the gospel, the kind of life that gets people talking because they can't help but notice the difference in us, then it's not enough that we are able to stand firm. We've also got to learn how to strive together as one. So how do we? Well, let's break it down a piece at a time. We're gonna look at that highlighted phrase, starting with the word striving, striving. Notice the verb change here. First, we're standing firm, but now there's a striving, there's an activity, there's a movement, a forward motion of some sorts in this act of striving. Paul's like, look, it's great that you could stand your ground, but now it's time that we take some ground. We get the sense that it's not enough to just hang back on defense. There is a a movement here. And notice, Paul doesn't give us an either or. He's not like, hey, you either stand or you strive. He, He gives us a both and. It's not enough to simply conserve and hold to what we've always known to be true. There's also a progress of sorts being made and fought for in the areas where truth is not being lived out. See, Jesus balanced this out perfectly, didn't he? Like it wasn't enough that he would grow in stature and favor with God and men through his understanding and memorization of the scriptures like every good little Jewish boy would have done. But he'd also go out at times and and, and do something that's way over the line culturally. Like when he met up that one time at a well with that Samaritan, the Samaritan woman, the Samaritan woman who had been married five times before, the Samaritan woman who had been married five times before and happened to be living presently with a man who wasn't her husband and he would dare to ask her for some water. See, Jesus not only stood firmly to what was true, but he would also strive forward wherever truth and value was not being held. How many of us contentedly hang back on what we've always known and done, and yet we're unwilling to follow Jesus into the battles that he would willingly wage at times? Paul says there is a gritty, tenacious striving to our faith. But the key, Paul gives it to us, the key is a striving for what? Check this out. Next highlighted phrase, striving for the faith of the gospel. A life worthy of the gospel doesn't just strive for any cause. It strives. This is why we're here, to advance no other mission than the mission that Jesus gave us, that others would place their faith in Jesus. Amen? And yet it is so easy, isn't it, to get caught up in lesser causes. Well, my March Madness uh, bracket's a bust. How about yours? 
Or there's a new Disney movie out, kind of over the line a little bit. Or daylight savings time, keep it or not. Like, or not even from that long ago, we talked about masks or no masks or vax or no vax. Like lesser causes, all of them. All of them, lesser causes. Am I saying don't have an informed opinion? Of course, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is it is so easy to be caught up in and only known by these lesser causes. And then if we do that, we miss why we are actually here. Think about it. Am I a Christian or a vaccian? Am I a Christian or an anti-Disneyan? Am I a Christian or a Mar Madnessian? <laughs> like the word Christian simply means a little Christ. And it was a name given to Christians. Christians didn't call themselves this. This was a name given in that day because Christians in mockery would look too much like Jesus. They would sound too much like Jesus. They wouldn't stop talking about Jesus. They wouldn't stop living like Jesus. And so the world starts saying, you guys look like Jesus, little Christs, Christian. And the question we have to consider is, does the world think that we look like and sound like little Jesuses or like little something else's? Paul says, we are to be striving for one thing, and that is the faith in the gospel. That's it. We cannot lose sight of why we are here. And the moment that we do, is it any wonder why the church seems to be more and more irrelevant these days? But it doesn't have to stay that way. And the key to regaining relevance, especially in this day, I believe, is through this final part, striving together as one for the faith in the gospel. Striving together as one. It, it's not enough to strive individually for the right cause. It happens all together. It happens with. There's this old Peanuts cartoon. Maybe you guys know it. Uh, Lucy, she threatens. You can take a look here. Lucy threatens her little brother. Switch channels. Linus is her brother. And Linus goes, hey, are you kidding? What makes you think you can just walk in over here and, and take over? And Lucy, I love this. She goes, these five fingers, individually they are nothing. But when I curl them up like this, they form a single unit, a weapon that is terrible to behold. And Linus goes, what channel do you want? <laughs> and then turning away to the camera, as it were, Linus goes, why can't you guys get organized like that? <laughs> and it's like I hear the Apostle Paul saying, church, why can't we get organized like that? Because in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus promised that he would build a church, did he not? A church that the gates of hell would never prevail against. Do we really think that hell is shaking in its boots at the threat of who we are right now against it? I'm telling you, there is more possible for the church. And so to borrow our boy Linus's terms, like why, what can help us get organized like that? Two quick equations. First, disagreement does not equal division. Disagreement does not have to equal division. See, this really comes down to 
uh, what's, keep, what's most central and keeping what is most central to our faith, the center of our faith, not some other lesser cause. Last week, Jeff pointed out that we uh, have a stance as Christians is to be like this, one hand closed and the other hand open. The closed hand is to maintain the essentials to the faith. That is Christ crucified and risen again. That is a non-negotiable. There is no other name under which humankind can be saved, right? That's a hill Jesus died on. That's a hill I will die on. But there's also plenty that's open-handed too. Not that it doesn't matter, but that there's room for two or more Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christians to disagree and discuss together without losing our heads. Historically, here are just some of the areas of disagreements that have led to division through the years. End times theology, ordination of women, intelligent design or theistic evolution, politics, Worship wars, modes of baptism, the list goes on, but you get the idea. Hot button topics, to be sure. Now, do I have my own convictions on each of these areas? Yes, absolutely. And we may disagree and and we can discuss these things together. In fact, I invite you, if you want to grab coffee sometime and talk this out, I would love Nothing more than to just discuss some of these different areas and where we land and why and all this. But, but to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, these conversations should be family matters. Things that we can discuss together as brothers and sisters in Christ with gentleness and respect without it being the only primary way that the world knows us. Without those issues becoming what we're known for dividing and arguing over in the public sphere. Because otherwise, what kind of witness is that? No, disagreement does not have to equal division. One more. My calling does not have to equal your calling. My calling may not necessarily equal your calling and vice versa. One of the quickest ways that we miss out on the calling God has on our life is to get wrapped up in the calling of somebody else. And in the same way, one of the ways that I may cause someone else to miss out on God's calling on their life is if I start to force my calling on them. My wife, Grace, and I were just talking through this question this past week. What if one of the reasons why Christians land in different areas of conviction at times isn't because one is right and the other is wrong? That happens, don't get me wrong, but what if it's not necessarily just because of that, but because God has led each Christian into that particular area in order to live out the calling that he has on their life specifically? Take a team of football players. A five foot 10, 180 pound wide receiver is gonna have a different uh, dietary plan and fitness plan than maybe an offensive tackle who weighs in at 400 pounds. There's just a difference. And it would be silly for each of them to force their own convictions dietarily and fitness wise on one another, right? They play very different roles. Couldn't we view the body of Christ similarly? 
that we each play different roles. And there's a reason why homeschooling or public school, a small home or a big home, living life overseas as a missionary or engaging in local mission work. Does one have to be more right than the other? Or is it perhaps that one is more what God is calling you to and one is what someone else is being called to by God? It seems to me the challenge becomes when we turn the particular calling on my life and the convictions that come along with that into a prescription for every other Christian in the world. It is so easy to judge what someone else is doing wrong if the grid is what I'm doing right. But what if what's best for you in an open-handed area isn't really the place where that in, another individual will thrive in living out God's will for their life? See, we have the same mission, right? Striving for the faith of the gospel. And we have to remember that We're on the same team, but sometimes our positions may look a little different. But if we have one clear objective, and if we each play our roles as God has called us to, then when one of us scores a touchdown, the entire team scores. In this way, we strive together. Paul says it like this, not just together, but together as one. And it's fascinating to me. But in the original Greek, there's actually a word there that didn't get translated into our English translation that we're looking at here today. And yet it contains an enormous explanation for how we can truly work as one, even with differing views on open-handed issues. This verse should read, look at this, strive together as or strive together with one Suke. That's the Greek word, suke. And my goodness, what a profound word for the Apostle Paul to include in his letter here, even if some of our English translators didn't think it was important to, to, to keep in there. Because suke, which is where we get our English word psyche from, is all about our preferences and our personality and our convictions and our temperaments. All of it are encapsulated within this word suke. Now stick with me because we're going to get very practical and very personal in a moment. But in, in, first, uh, sorry, in uh, John 15, 13, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, than a man or than, than to lay down one's life or suke, for one's friends. Now, that's interesting. We quote this verse oftentimes to reference the ultimate sacrifice, a life to spare the life of another person from death. But that's not what Jesus is actually saying here. Jesus, we we know he's not saying that because there's a Greek word for physical life that Jesus could have used. That's the word zoe. It would have said greater love is no one than this than to lay down one's zoe for one's friends. But that's not what it says. It says suke, which means something else than physical life. It's our soulish life, our temperament, our personality, our convictions, all this. Jesus uses, again, the same word in John 10, 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his suke, not Zoe, for the sheep. Now that's interesting, again, because same thing. Did Jesus lay down his Zoe physical life for us? Yes, once on the cross. And yet, I believe he's saying something more. He's saying every second of every day while on earth... He was laying down his suke for us. 
every second of every day, not just a one-time act on the cross, but he was laying down his essence for the sheep, his full self. And then we're told, 1 John 3, 16, Jesus laid down his suke for us. We ought to lay down our suke's for the brothers and sisters. So it's the same thing again. One last one. Jesus said this in John 13, 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love or lay down your suke for one another. Let's spell this out. By this, the world will know that we belong to Jesus if we lay down our entire selves for one another. By this, the world will know that we are his disciples if we lay down our preferences in worship, our preferences in preaching, our preferences in schooling for one another. If we lay down our convictions that really aren't essential to the gospel for one another. If we lay down our wealth and our intellect and our political positions for the sake of Christ and him crucified, otherwise the world will know a whole lot about us, but they won't know very much about Jesus. That's what he's saying. And that is what Paul is trying to tell us. That the most meaningful way that we can exemplify the gospel in a way that turns heads and points them toward Christ is if we can stop the infighting among us and rally around the one thing that matters, Jesus. Go back to the 1992 dream team. What do we see here? I see... 12 different players from nearly 10 different NBA teams, which is pretty crazy to think about. 10 different teams almost represented in this picture. Now imagine, wouldn't it have been crazy if, if they posed for this U.S. team photo and they decided to sport their NBA jerseys instead? Like that would be kind of silly, right? Instead of the U.S. ones to wear the NBA jerseys. Or how about this? What if whenever they played on the court, they got territorial and made things personal. Kind of like, you know, Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan were on the same team. They were from the Bulls. So what if MJ goes, hey, you know what? I'm going to play with Scottie and nobody else because we're from the same team. That would make no sense. Because after all, they're the U.S. national team. That's what defines them, not the NBA teams that they come from. And so why is it so easy in the church to let our other labels, our other jerseys define us and not the blood of Christ? Because it wasn't Bulls or Spurs, Lakers or Knicks. No, no one would have wanted to play on that team. No one would have wanted to get into that game because it'd be a mess. And I cannot help but wonder, if it's, is there any surprise as to why the world wants so little to do with the church? Jesus said this plainly in John 17. It's his big prayer before his, his crucifixion. And in this dark hour, the only thing on his mind is to pray. And here's what keeps him up at night. John 17, it's actually 20 through 23, basically. My prayer, Jesus says, is not for the disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one. 
And that as we're brought to complete unity, he says this, verse 23, then the world will know when we're one, then the world will know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. How often do we find ourselves sitting around tables wondering why can't we seem to reach the lost around us? Or I wonder why people aren't coming to faith in droves these days. And we spend all kinds of money and resources and time arguing over methods and strategies to change it up. And yet the play that coach Jesus seems to call is this one. With unity, oneness, with. That's why we're taking a year as a church to consider this word with and what it means for us as a church because it is that important. Because it's only then when the church is united as one, when the dominant jersey that we're wearing is Jesus and nothing else, that is when the world will finally know that Jesus loves them and died to save them. And so which jersey are we wearing, church? Are we playing in the right game? Because until we realize what matters most, the world will remain blind to what they need the most, and that is Jesus. Now, we've considered a lot this morning, so let's see if we can summarize this up into a very, a very succinct statement that, that we can take with us this week, kind of like a mantra of sorts. Here, here, here's what we've got. Same team, same goal. Same team, same goal. Same team reminds me that life as a Christian isn't a solo gig. It's done together as one. And sometimes that gets messy, right? But although disagreements and differences are inevitable, division does not have to be. See, it's the power of a team that strives together as one that makes the mission real. And until we can get our heads in the game and remember who it is, Jesus Christ, that we are fighting for, we will find ourselves fighting against one another rather than fighting alongside one another. This month, my wife Grace and I celebrated 16 years of being together. And if I've learned one thing in our time together, it's that conflict is unavoidable. My goodness. Like, I remember one piece of advice I was given that really helped us out, though. An older married man, he suggested, whenever things get heated, shift your body to get shoulder to shoulder with your spouse rather than face to face. Just shoulder to shoulder, side by side. This way, you're looking at the problem together as opposed to looking at the problem in the other person. Now, I tried this for months without letting Grace know because I just wanted to see if it had merit, you know what I mean? Um, because, but I'll tell you, it's been enormously helpful. I mean, whenever conflict arises of any kind, I try as best as I can to get side by side with her so that we can tackle the problem together. And the problem is something that we are working on as one because we're on the same team, right? And if it's a mistake that I made, okay, guess what? It's a problem that we share and we need to work on this together. And it goes both ways. I don't have a problem with her. We have a problem that we can tackle 
together. How might a similar shift in our church help when differences arise? Any kind of difference to get side by side and to attack the problem together rather than one another. Same team, shoulder to shoulder, attacking the problem together. So same team, one more, same goal, same goal. Because even if at times we find ourselves landing in different places due to different areas of convictions or our methods or our preferences, basically connected to our unique callings, we can still keep focused on the one collective objective because there is one singular cause worth living for and that's to make known the Jesus that we have come to know. And it may look different for each of us because of the different ways that he's wired us or the different convictions that we've landed on presently, whatever it might be, but that doesn't have to change the end goal for us. Same team, same goal. Same team, same goal. And just imagine with me, what would it be like if we as the church of Jesus Christ truly lived with this mentality? Because if we adopted a same team, same same goal mentality, imagine how it would free up the whole body to operate in our spirit-empowered giftings. How it might deepen our joy in serving together, no longer being entangled in the unnecessary infighting that happens, but striving together as one with a clear focus in view. How might this allow us as his church to reach more people than any one of us could reach on our own? See, when we adopt a same team, same goal mentality, I believe we will find marriages mended, families strengthened, the streets cleaned up, life teams on fire, churches being planted, the gospel going out and the world being changed. That's what I wanna see. And I believe that's what our world needs to see. And when it does, it will turn heads. It'll turn heads all the way to Jesus. Pray with me. Lord, there is not enough time to dig into all of the specific areas where we find disagreement now, the different ways and the different places where I know even in our spirit right now, I I can sense, Lord, that there's just something you're trying to do in us. But what about this area? This is so important. What about this? Is this really, and I'm not downplaying the importance of these things. Father, you know my heart but we know deep in our soul, we know that Jesus is worth more than the things we get hung up on. And so I pray for each person hearing the sound of my voice even now. Lord, may it not be my voice that they're hearing, but may it be your spirit that the things I've said that aren't really that important, that really we're not even with your will, God, would you cut those things out, but let your spirit be heard as we process the question of are we on the same team? Do we have the same goal? And if we do, and if we are, then God, have your way in us. Break down the areas that divide. May we see only Jesus. May the world see only Jesus. 
And Lord, I pray for any right now in this room, anyone even listening right now, God, who, who's not even on the team yet, but they're hearing Coach Jesus recruiting them right now. They're hearing Coach Jesus say, come follow me. Lord, would this be the time? Would this be the time where they turn in, in their heart toward you and they say, Lord, I give you my life. I know you died and rose again for me. I know you wanna bring me into your family. And so Lord, I believe. And Lord, for others, even in this room right now who are wrestling with questions of, I've run the wrong play. I, I, I've I focused on the things that don't matter as much as, as you. God, would this be a time where we can just surrender those things to you? Surrender them to you. And would you make us new, we ask. All this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.